The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Adrian Vandervalk, is a writer, coach, yoga and meditation teacher. She's the co-founder of Riva Recovery Support and co-host of the Hangover Liberation Society podcast. Her book, Big Sober Energy, will be released this winter. You can read her essay called Mindfulness Over Merlot on the Spirituality Health website at spiritualityhealth.com. Adrian Vandervalk, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you because this is a topic that sadly I have a lot of interest in, a lot of experience with, not alcohol, but other other problems. Mm. So before we get into the role of mindfulness and sobriety, tell us your own story regarding all this stuff. Yeah, I was, I think, in many ways, my introduction to drinking was very typical. I was in high school. I drank with my friends in my parents' basement and just really got a lot out of that socially. And also, I think as many young people do, started to really craft an identity around being kind of a rebel, being someone who, you know, was breaking rules and things like that. I grew up in Iowa, so there wasn't a whole lot going on there. And I just found that really exciting and intriguing and fun. Drank all the way through college, as many people do. And then when a lot of my peers started to cut back in their late 20s, early 30s, I did not. And I really continued to cling to this identity that I had, again, forged for myself at a pretty young age, that I was someone who liked drinking, was a fun person to go drinking with, and had no interest in quitting, and also had no real understanding that the way that alcohol affected me was not the way that it affected other people. And it wasn't until probably around my mid-30s, I started to really start having a lot more regret, having a lot more physical symptoms related to my drinking. I wasn't a daily drinker necessarily, but whenever I drank, I really, really overdid it. And it was starting to affect my friendships, my memory, my, and I think in many ways prevented me from pursuing some opportunities that could have propelled my career in a different direction. And so I finally made the decision that I should try to quit. And that proved to be very difficult for me. I could go for maybe a few weeks or, you know, at certain points, a few months. And I always, always found myself having the conversation that I could 
if I just tried hard enough, I could make myself moderate. I could set some rules. I could only have a certain number of drinks. I would only drink on certain days. I would only drink certain kinds of alcohol. And inevitably, these rules always got broken. And inevitably, I would end up right back where I had been, which was, you know, binge drinking and blacking out and really having some negative consequences as a result of that. And of course, this made me feel terrible because I assumed all of this was just my fault, that it just meant that I was weak and incapable of taking charge of my own life because I had no other framework within which to think about this. I knew that I wasn't addicted to alcohol necessarily, at least not in the way that I thought of alcohol as being addictive. I didn't get the shakes. I didn't have to drink every day. So I just didn't understand what was going on with me. And it wasn't until, I mean, this really went on for a long time. It was about 10 years of trying and failing and feeling really, really inadequate and hard on myself. I started doing some research into the brain science of substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder specifically. And what I came to realize was that having used for so long in the way that I did, I had actually changed my brain. And getting back to what I mentioned before, that alcohol had an effect on me that was different than the way that it affected other people. Some people can just take or leave drinking. It's not that important to them. For me, alcohol was very, very important, like literally from the first time I ever drank. And understanding that kind of created a little bit of a buffer for me where I was able to practice some self-compassion and I was able to seek out some tools for myself to help start to change my brain in the direction that would be more sustainable and more helpful to me. And the main tool that I really relied on and still relied on is mindful meditation. So tell, tell us more about alcohol use disorder. I mean, you just used that term a couple of minutes ago. It was a new, I hadn't heard the term before, AUD or alcohol use disorder. How does it, can you define that for us and then help me understand how it differs from the notion of like, like in 12 step or something, alcoholism is a disease. Right, yeah. So I think that, it's, it's interesting when you read accounts from doctors, there's a wonderful book out right now called Sunshine Warm Sober. And the author of this book compiled a panel of experts. And these are like MD, PhD level folks who study this stuff in labs and are like, you know, the top principal investigators in their fields. And she posed questions to them like, what is addiction? What causes alcoholism? Is there such a thing as an alcoholic? And they all had different answers. Okay. So I think, at least for me, that there was such a stigma around the idea of being an alcoholic. And I feel really different about this now because my whole attitude toward this issue has changed significantly over the course of my own learning. But I knew I had a problem. I knew it was affecting me negatively. I really at, you know, would have done anything to fix it, but I was not willing to call myself an alcoholic. I just could not do that. And so in many ways, I think that it may, have, it may be a useful term for some people, and I would never tell anyone that they shouldn't use that term if that's how they identify. 
But I also think there is a world where we can talk about disordered drinking as a, as a problem that somebody might encounter in their lives. And then we give them the support that they need to thrive and overcome that problem rather than label everyone who experiences disordered drinking as an addict or an alcoholic, which becomes then like an identity, right? And then that identity can be, can in some cases, I think, get in the way of how we treat each other, how we talk about each other, how we treat ourselves. And so, you know, again, I'm very agnostic about how people want to identify for themselves, but I'm also very interested in bringing a little bit more nuance to the way that we talk about disordered drinking, substance use disorder. I don't even like to say substance abuse because that, again, applies that like I am somehow an abuser. And I don't think I am. I think I am someone who got addicted to an addictive substance and was probably more likely to have that happen than other people because of some genetic stuff in my family, because of some anxiety issues that I've battled my whole life. It's, there's a huge variety of reasons why someone might develop one of these disordered, you know, one of these disorders. And it's very difficult to predict. We can't put everyone in the same bucket. Well, that makes sense. I guess you went through it so quickly. You mentioned this book so quickly. I just want to make sure people heard, if they're interested, the title for the clearly. So I only got the first and the last word, Sunshine Something Sober. Yes. So the author of the book is Catherine Gray, and the title is Sunshine, Warm, Sober. Warm. Sunshine, mm -hmm. Warm, Sober. Gray with an E or gray with an A, do you know? I believe it's gray with an A. Okay. And the reason that she called her book this, and I just absolutely love it, is you've heard, everyone's heard the term stone cold sober. Ah. And that really implies like rigidity and like isolation. And that doesn't feel fun. That doesn't feel like a rewarding way to live, right? Something that's like hard and cold. And what she found, you know, in, in her journey as she got sober was that to her being sober felt like sunshine. It felt like being like in a warm, sunny field. And so she started using that term instead of as an alternative to stone cold sober, she lives a sunshine, warm, sober life. And I, I really love that. That is a nice alternative. I, I like that as well. I have to take a look at that book. I want to move on in a second to just take a look at the whole notion of willpower and a couple of features that you mentioned in the article. Again, the article is called Mindfulness Over Merlot, and you can read it on the website, spiritualityhealth.com. I want to talk to you about Jill Teets, and I want to talk to you about Judd Brewer, but you raised something else, and I just want to get your sense on this. What is your, do you think there's such a thing as a addictive personality? Because you said like you are more apt to be, to get addicted to, you don't want to use the word addicted, but to have, you know, challenges with alcohol mm -hmm. than other mm -hmm. people might. So do you think there's such a thing as an addictive personality? I think that that is a, an oversimplified way of talking about something that is really more helpful to think about it as a reward system. And we all have reward systems that are built into our bodies 
by virtue of the fact that we have evolved as as mammals. And so there are certain hormones that flood our brains that are designed to keep us alive. Like we feel good when we eat. We feel good when we have sex. We feel good when we drink water. These are some examples that Jill Teets gives that I quoted in the article. And so that system keeps us motivated to do things that we see as very important to our survival, right? And so I think the reason that some people are more susceptible to um, substance use disorders, and this is sometimes characterized as, as having an addictive personality, but really what's going on is that they have a brain makeup or a chemical makeup in their brain that for whatever reason makes that reward of drinking or using drugs feel so important that when they do not have it, there is a completely outsized level of stress that happens. So, you know, anybody can be walking down the street and think, oh, you know what would sound, what sounds good right now is like a piece of chocolate cake. Mm, like maybe I'll get some chocolate cake. That's kind of a craving, like a normal level of craving that is not going to like send you to the store where you're going to like sit in the aisle of the grocery store and eat a whole chocolate cake, right? For someone who is has developed some neuropathways in their brain that have that have been reinforced by a reward cycle that always 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 ends in drinking or using, that craving becomes like completely unbearable. It's worth noting that this can happen to anyone. If anyone drinks enough alcohol, they will get addicted to it, right? Because alcohol is an addictive substance. I think we tend to kind of block that out as a, as a culture. We don't really like to talk about that. But a lot of people don't feel the reward from drinking alcohol, so they never would drink enough to get addicted, if that makes sense. So I think rather than think about it as a personality thing, maybe think about it as more of a, you know, you have a a set of risk factors that you bring with you and some people have more than others. Yeah. I mean, my alcohol has absolutely no attraction to me. I've never actually had a full glass of anything. I just don't like the taste. Food, on the other hand, that is my that that is I have a food use disorder if you want to you know fud, but but I just made that up as far as the fud idea. I mean I'm a compulsive overeater and I eat. To, I I reward myself. You know if I did something I think oh need a pat in the back well let's have food in the mouth instead. But if something's going wrong I go to food. If something's stressful I go to food. I mean food yeah. is what I what I do. And, and you know there was a. I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a Lay's potato chip commercial that said you just can't, you can't eat just one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't eat just one. If I eat one, I eat the bag. And what I have to do, if I test my hypothesis, oh, I can eat just one. And then I discover I can't. I have to crush the bag until they're just crumbs and then I throw it out. I can't even... I can't even leave them intact because if I throw it in the trash and they're intact, I might go back to the trash. I mean, the bag is sealed. I might as well just get it out of there and eat some more. So it it really is a crazy making thing. Mm -hmm. Though I I personally don't have a problem with with classic 12-step talk because that's been my my salvation there. So I don't mind using those words. 
But what I've experienced and, and what you talk about in the article is that, and, and what they say in 12-step, is it's not about willpower. I have a lot of willpower over, I have willpower over alcohol. <laughs> I have willpower over a lot of things, but not over certain kinds of food. Yeah. So I mentioned this researcher, Jill Teets, and she says the same thing. It's, it's not about willpower. How, how does her work and Dr. Brewer's work in neuroscience, what, what do they tell us about this whole willpower issue? Well, Jill Teets is a really interesting person in the recovery world, I think, because her whole way of showing up is to use her expertise as a research scientist to decode some of the really sciencey, kind of difficult to understand, high level you know, that kind of MD-PhD type that I mentioned earlier, you know, these, these types of studies are being done all the time. We're always learning new things about why the reward cycle works the way it does, why some people might be more inclined to develop these issues than others, what are effective treatments, et cetera. But these research studies are inaccessible to most people. And she has a very unique skill in that she turned to this research to help her understand her own brain and has since, through her podcast, she has a podcast and a YouTube channel and a couple of other, and some, some online courses that she's created and has essentially brought that information to lay people like me who, you know, I might be able to get through the first couple of lines of an abstract of an article like that, but you know, I don't have the logins to the special databases where I could read the whole thing. And if I did, I probably wouldn't understand what they said. But Jill does. And so she's able to really take the nuggets out of those papers and those studies and explain to people why the experiences that they've had are happening to them, what it means about what's going on in their brains, and that this happens to other people too. And it's not their fault. And I feel like her way of doing that is so relatable. And she also shares her own personal story, really interwoven with the science. And so I, I came across her just, you know, as, as I said, as I was informing myself. And after I became more involved in recovery coaching and working with students, now I actually assign her podcast to my students because you know, they, they might have a specific issue that they're really struggling with. She usually has a podcast about that, you know, as for a study or studies that she's, that she's read. And so she and I have had a few conversations about the studies related to the benefits of mindful meditation, substance use disorder, and, and craving reduction specifically. And there is some really, really compelling evidence there. And now Judd Brewer is one of these MD-PhD folks who has been studying this stuff his whole career and is also a really lifelong advocate, advocate of meditation for any kind of craving, really. I mean, he, craving is very much at the center of his work. And so he really, I think, has been a strong advocate for what, you know whatever modality it is that you're pursuing to help you overcome these issues you know, it's never, ever, ever a, a bad idea. And in fact, is in, in most cases can only help you to add mindful meditation to whatever it is that you're already doing, whether it's 12-step, whether it's therapy, whether it's treatment, 
whether it's hypnosis. I mean, people do all kinds of stuff. Some There are some medications out there that are designed to help people break this cycle. And meditation, I think he feels, and I, and I would agree, should be start becoming the sta- a standard way, a standard part of all of these kinds of treatments. He questions, if, if I understood him right, bits and pieces that I was following, he seems to question the, the very existence of willpower. Did I overstate that? I don't think so. I think he is someone who believes that from a scientific perspective, you can't really isolate willpower as any kind of variable. There's not a lot of evidence that like you can study two brains or two sets of behavior and say, oh, this person has willpower and this person doesn't. You can be the most self-disciplined person in the world and still develop an addiction. And so I think, I think, you know, again, back to kind of bringing some complexity to the conversation, if we can, if we can get away from the idea that if we just tried hard enough, these problems would go away. If we, you know, if that were true, nobody would have a substance use disorder. (laughs) I think if there were a way to like train ourselves to just try hard enough or train ourselves to figure out a way to moderate. If that were possible, someone would have figured that out a long time ago, if you could, if yeah. you could do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with, with what he's saying. I agree with what you're saying. <clears throat> to me, it's, it's not about willpower. In, in the 12-step parlance, you know, they talk about higher power, which mm. is a, a real mm-hmm. misnomer. I don't like the term higher power. If you take a look at the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W. talks about a greater power a power that's greater than ourselves, but not higher. Higher implies a hierarchy and it's very masculine and I don't like it, but there is a greater power of which we are a part. And then you, uh, I, I don't even say you're surre- you surrender to that power because that's an act of will. And I don't think you can do that. If I could do it, I wouldn't have a food issue. If, if I could surrender my, my, you know, uh, my use of alcohol, to some other power, then I wouldn't have to deal with, I wouldn't be an alcoholic, though I don't know, I know you don't like the term. I wouldn't, that wouldn't be my issue. I don't think you can do that. I think it's a matter of, ultimately a matter of grace. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. And that, I think, comes in, in the context that you're talking. That's one of the gifts of mindfulness practice is it, it surrenders you to this greater reality that allows you to observe the madness of the mind without necessarily following its dictates. At least, at least that's, that's my experience with, with meditation in general. What, what, when you talk about mindfulness, let's put some more definitions out there. What, what do you have in mind when you talk about mindfulness practice? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I think about the difference between meditation and mindfulness, I see meditation as the practice and mindfulness as kind of the way of 
being. And the practice really supports the way of being. So if we can carve out some time in our day to simply sit and observe what is and not tell ourselves a story about it and not try to chase a certain feeling or avoid a certain feeling or judge whatever it is that's going on and we just allow ourselves to simply be, then, you know, back to this neuroplasticity idea, neural pathways, over time, our brain becomes more used to feeling a reward from that, feeling like, okay, the the voices in our heads can quiet down a little bit. We have a little bit of distance between us and the narratives that are, are kind of running in there all the time, some of which are really not helpful. And and none of which are like us. I think this is another thing that that meditation helps us recognize is there are voices and ideas that we pick up along the way that don't really reflect who we truly are. And it gives us an opportunity to kind of see the difference. And then over time, you don't necessarily, you, you develop the skills and you develop that way of, of being and knowing. And, and I really like what you said about this greater power. You, you recognize like that we're, you're not as alone as you thought you were. And when you be out there in the world, living your life, and maybe a stressful thing happens, but you have the training essentially from your mindful or from your meditation practice to really just observe that as a temporary thing. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to ruin your day. It doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to invent a story about it because you've practiced doing that in your meditation practice. And so it just gives you a little bit of a buffer in a world that can really be feel very harsh and extreme sometimes and allows us to just kind of flow around some of these obstacles And I think part of the reason why this is so helpful to people with substance use disorder is that living in a mindful way prevents us from constantly chasing things that we want or running away from things that we don't want. And that's really, I think, kind of the definition of a substance use disorder. We're always like rushing, running after this high and trying to flee, you know, whatever feelings or awkwardness or anxiety it is that we might be trying to avoid. And we just end up on kind of a treadmill to nowhere. And so mindfulness can help us just, just takes the anxiety out of both of those things and just gives us a little more of an opportunity to live with some peace. I know that in my own situation, if I imbue the voices in my head with meaning, or importance, I'm doomed. Like I, I, I will find myself standing in front of an open refrigerator, not anybody's, but you know, in my house, <laughs> and I'm looking at the refrigerator and I'm going, all right, what am I going to eat? And then, you know, one voice says, you know, points to something, whatever it happens to be and say, no, eat this, eat this. And another voice says, no, you're not hungry. Why are you doing this? And they, and they start arguing with one another and I'm supposed to align myself with one or the other. Right. Whenever that happens, I always align with the one who says eat because the other one is boring. Mm. But if I just observe, if I'm just mindful of the the voices and I recognize they're not me, they're just, they pop into my head and they're playing out on a like a movie set, a movie screen, but I'm observing them and I I can walk away. I can't, I don't argue with them. Neither one wins. I just close the refrigerator and walk away without 
not a matter of willpower. It's like, geez, this is stupid. And I guess, I guess walk away. So I, I think we're on a, you know, on a same page. One of the things though, that I get from 12 step and we just haven't talked about it. So maybe it's, it's in your experience too, is the power of sharing stories. So 12 step happens in community. And I don't know if that's part of your experience or not, but you know, you go to 12 step meetings, either in person or on zoom or on the phone or whatever it is. And you listen to people tell their story, partly their story of, of their addiction and partly the story of their recovery. But I know that when I listen to other people's stories, whether it's a rock bottom story or it's a recovery story, and, and it's sort of, they go together, they're somewhat seamless. But anyway, when I listen to their story, the story sharing has a very positive impact on me. Does that, does that play out in, in alcohol use disorder, dealing oh. with alcohol use disorder, the, the community part, the storytelling part? Absolutely. In fact, I, I think that it is so fundamental to, I mean, I hate to speak in absolutes, but I would say that it, I don't want to ever say like, oh, it's impossible to get sober without this or that. But I think we're make, you would be making it much, much harder for yourself to try to do this in isolation. And I mean, I know that for a fact because that's what I did for 10 years. And so I had, you know, where I was living at the time that I really got serious about this, I was living in a very, very fundamentalist religious environment. And so I, I felt quite isolated anyway. And I kind of told myself like, well, I can't go to AA because it's just going to be like, is I, I'm not going to fit in there and, and I won't, you know, I won't, people won't understand me. And I, and they, everyone here kind of is like-minded and, and I'll be like an outcast. And I actually have some regret about that. I think I probably did not give the AA community where I lived enough credit. I think a lot of my resistance came from fear, came from ego, came from judgment. And like I said, I, I really did carry a lot of resistance to the label alcoholic. And I think that got in my way too. So I think if I could go back and, you know, we all want to go back in time and like whisper in the ear of our, <laughs> our younger selves. I would have really encouraged myself to go. But what I did instead is I not not the same, but is I read every Quitlet memoir that I could get my hands on. So I wasn't sitting in a room with someone who was telling me their story, but I immersed myself in these stories for like two years. And that was incredibly important, not only to my own realization that I wasn't alone right? That it wasn't like this horrible defect that I alone suffered with, but that by, you know, these were people who not only went through it and came out the other side, but they told the whole world about it, right? And they were helping me. And that like, that clicked in a way that really, really transformed my thinking about this whole thing. Like, and that maybe if they did that, I could do it too. And so I just started being, you know, I did eventually join an online 
recovery support group. And I also joined a, a, a spiritual community that was that I was really aligned with. And it wasn't necessarily a recovery community, but just everybody there w- happened to be sober. So that, and that was kind of important, you know, an important part of what we talked about. So ultimately, I just couldn't agree more that stories, community, so critically important because so much of I think there's a great quote out there and I, you might know who said it. I, it, I can't remember the person saying, but that the opposite of addiction is connection that, you know, if we can just find a way to, to connect with other people, allow them to connect with us and not then, and realize that we are really never alone in, in the universe. At least I don't believe we are, but we, but we feel like we are. And that loneliness can just make it so much more difficult to get the help that we need. But man, you know, once I started listening to these, listening to podcasts like Jill's and reading these stories from other people who'd gone through them, that that really like broke. That was like broke open in me something that needed to that had needed to change for a long time. So I I do really agree. So we're just about out of time. If someone's listening and they're thinking about, I would like to become or move toward, you know, sunshine, warm, sober, or they have a friend or a family member who'd like, who could benefit from that. I mean, you've basically given us some general understandings, podcasts, quit lit books, and and a spiritual practice. I'm assuming it's a mindfulness practice community that you found. Can you, to bring this to an end, can you, to a close, can you, be a little more specific. Was there one or two quick quit lit books that you would recommend or a specific podcast you mentioned? I think Jill Teet's podcast, I don't know if it has a name, but can you give us more direction as we bring this to, to a close? Absolutely. Jill's podcast is called Sober Powered, and that is also the name of her YouTube channel. So highly recommend that. There, Jill also has a very active Facebook group called Sober Powered as well. And so I know not everyone uses Facebook, but if you do, that's available. It's a very supportive group and all of those resources are free. There are really a a very expansive and ever-expanding number of online sober communities that are out there. And, you know, I haven't done an exhaustive study of all of all of them. I tend to think that the best recommendation is to find a sober community that resonates with you, that supports you in being able to show up as the fullest, most like beautiful expression of who you are as a person and commit and just go all in on that community, whatever it is, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's AA, whether it's Tempest Sobriety School, whether there's a, there's a, an online group called We Are the Lucky, the Luckiest Club. There are, there's a few others that are out there that, that really are, their names are escaping me and I can certainly follow up in an email with you. I'm not in, you know, endorsing any of them. I think it really is something that people need to explore for themselves, but you know, if you feel welcome, if you feel like you can show up in all of your identities and be supported, then that might be a great community for you. If you don't, then if you're being asked to suppress any part of yourself in a a recovery setting, I think that's usually a red flag. I also think it's a red flag if anybody tells you, you have to do this or you'll never get sober. I just, I think that kind of absolute 
I think that's a very kind of outdated way of talking about recovery. And so, you know, find a place where you feel seen, heard, held, loved. The the books that that really made a, the biggest difference to me. And again, there are there are a lot of good ones out there, but there's a book by Craig Beck called Alcohol Lied to Me that totally changed. Again, this was another kind of cracking open moment was when I read that book. And it really made me realize like I I thought of alcohol as like my best friend and that who just kept betraying me like over and over and over again. And then I just started realizing like, I'm like literally drinking poison. This is attractively packaged poison. Alcohol is not my friend (laughs) and alcohol has been sold to me and to all of us as this normal thing that everyone should do when they're happy, when they're sad, when they're celebrating, you know, it's just part of, it's part of our day-to-day life. And then you're the weirdo if you can't drink it or don't drink it. Right. And like, we shouldn't feel like weirdos for drinking poison. And so once I was able to kind of flip that in my mind, that was super helpful to me. So I like alcohol lied to me. And then my other favorite quit like Quitlet book is called Blackout by a journalist called Sarah Heppola, who's also in recovery and was, you know, drinking to blackout for years and years of her life. And so she really came and and I had the same experience. She really came at it from the perspective of, I'm going to tell my story, but I'm going to interweave it with this research that I'm doing about why what is happening in your brain, why some people black out, and why it's almost impossible for the people around you to even know because you're walking, you're talking, you're laughing, you're dancing, you're maybe even driving and you don't remember any of it, but nobody around you knows that your brain has basically switched off. And that's a really, really scary thing. So that was one of those books where when I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, this person is is me. You know, I I see myself in this story and she was brave enough to tell her story. So maybe I I could be too. So those are just a couple of recommendations that I really love and that I always try to to share. Well, I think that was great. And it was a great way to bring this to a close. Our guest today, Adrian Vandervalk, is the author of Big Sober Energy. The book will be out in this coming winter. You can read her essay, Mindfulness Over Merlot on the Spirituality and Health website, spiritualityhealth.com. Adrian, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. You're very welcome. And I'll just mention that if anyone is interested in getting an alert when the book is out or wants to download a free preview chapter, you can go to bigsoberenergy.com and just sign up and I'll make sure you get it. Perfect. Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, and I'm sure you did, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality and Health Magazine, please become one at spiritualityhealth.com. Thanks for listening. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you 
create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.